This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. My junior high school years, or what is now referred to as middle school, were the worst years of my life. It was the late 70s, and blue eyeshadow and Farrah Fawcett hair were all the rage. I wasn't allowed to wear makeup back then, and my hair looked nothing like the pinup queens. It was dirty, dishwater, blonde, and frizzy, and it looked more like the hair sported by the character Cameron Diaz played in the movie Being John Malkovich. Nevertheless, I tried my best to fashion it in as stylish a manner as I could, and experimented with every methodology I could muster to tame the unruly, bushy mane. I tried sleeping with large, prickly rollers atop my head. I attempted flattening it with rows and rows of bobby pins. I sat under an enormous hairdryer with my locks stretched tight over giant soup cans. One night, in utter desperation, I even tried ironing it with a real iron. But nothing worked for more than an hour or so, and the moment I left the house, my hair returned to its natural, unfettered state. When I finally gave up and cut it short, I still tried to feather out the bangs. But because I had a funny cowlick on the right side of my head, my bangs would only properly feather on the left side. My right side always resulted in one gigantic <laughs> hair wave protruding out of my forehead. That's Dee Dee laughing in the background, listeners. Although I loathed the way my hair, the way that side looked, I was mesmerized by the perfectly feathered hair on the left. That was the side of me I could show off. Who cared that one half of my head looked like a ski slope? The other side was like Farah's. That side of me was cool. I longed to fit in back then. I wished I were popular and pretty and thin. Instead, I was awkward and chubby and invisible. I toyed with the idea of trying out for the cheerleading team in an effort to be one of the it girls. But inasmuch as I fantasized about having a boyfriend on the football team and being invited to the post-game parties... I knew that I could never bring myself to even attempt doing the necessary cartwheels and backbends. Instead, I joined the math club and the glee club and the honor society. For a while, I was even in the marching band, but dropped out when the practices interfered with my tenure working on the school magazine. I loaded up my days with every extracurricular endeavor I could fit in. I loved what I was doing, but I hated that I was still shunned by the cool kids and the athletes and the in-crowd. Late one afternoon, I stayed after school to help the drama club design costumes for an upcoming play. It was a production about the Revolutionary War, and we were making wigs out of paper bags. After hours of cutting and pasting, we became a bit punchy, 
and decided to try on the wigs. We knew how ridiculous we looked, but somehow we didn't care. We all looked ridiculous together. We started posing and parading through the empty school, our laughter echoing in the shadowy hallways, the camaraderie palpable. I'll never forget my feeling of exhilaration as we started running through the library and the lunchroom, the art department and the auditorium. I don't really know what had come over us or why we were running, but in that instant, I felt a part of something bigger than myself, and I felt happy. Finally, we made our way through the gymnasium, and as we cackled in the corridors, we found ourselves face-to-face with a busload of football players and cheerleaders returning from an away game. We froze as our laughter turned into theirs, fully directed at us in our foolish wigs, and then quietly slunk back over to our side of the school. By the time I got to high school, I became more adept at playing the part of an aspiring insider. I snuck a bottle of red nail polish into my locker and would arrive at school, paint my nails, and then remove all of the polish before going home at the end of the day. I started dieting and discovered sun-in and slowly became a real blonde. I even lathered on a popular suntan in a tube called QT, which I had to abandon after it turned me orange. Perhaps it was all the effort I made to get the popular kids to like me, or perhaps it was my new blonde hair, but by the time I graduated, I felt ever so slightly more accepted by my peers. Or perhaps I just didn't hate myself as much, and I was simply projecting. After I graduated and went off to college, I became friends with a bunch of lovely, wonderful, slightly loony deadheads. They frowned upon anything that wasn't natural. Makeup and nail polish and hair color were thoroughly uncool. So I let my roots grow in, put the pounds back on, and proudly portrayed my new persona. It wasn't until I bumped into an old high school classmate on campus that I questioned my new image. Though we had known each other for years, he no longer recognized me. When I reminded him who I was, he looked stunned. He was speechless. Finally, he leaned in very close and quietly told me that I was so pale and looked so different, he thought I might be sick. After that, I still kept my deadhead friends close, but always snuck on some blush when I knew that no one would catch me. Not much has changed all these years later. I still want to fit in, and I still worry about my weight, and I still agonize over my hair. But instead of wearing rollers to bed, three times a year I go to a fancy salon and spend three hours having it colored and straightened. I've finally given up my quest for coolness. In fact, I don't even know what cool is anymore. And at nearly 48 years old, I don't even think it's possible to be cool anymore. Right now, more than anything else in the world, I'd much rather be considered hot. Welcome to the 100th broadcast and the Season 5 finale of Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the magnificent Dee Dee Gordon. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a little bit more about her. Dee Dee Gordon has been at the forefront of youth culture and trend research for over 15 years. She broke new ground in market research by co-creating the famed L Report, the first national report to track trend diffusion among youth. 
Didi became a pioneer in the field by taking youth culture research online and co-founding a company to create one-of-a-kind research, marketing, and trend online consulting in youth culture, and created the largest global community of 14 to 35-year-old youth to report on their own culture. In 2003, Didi launched Look Look Magazine, a publication providing a forum and an opportunity for young artists, photographers, and writers around the world to have their work published. She is recognized internationally for being a leader in youth culture and was featured on PBS's Frontline Special Merchants of Cool, which is used in marketing curriculum in college classrooms all over the world. Welcome, Dee Dee. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your 100th episode. Congrats. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for so laughing. At, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for laughing in my monologue. That just cracked me oh, up. Oh, it was hysterical. I could have laughed the whole time because I totally <laughs> know exactly, you know, your whole, I know exactly what happened with you because I was voted most new wave in my high school. See, but you <laughs> voted most new wave. I mean, that's pretty cool. I didn't even know what new wave was when I was in high school. Actually, I don't think new wave had been discovered when I was in high school, do you? <laughs> I still like haven't uh, lived this down. I reconnected with all these people from high school on Facebook, and uh, it's one of those things they like to remind me of. Really? So yeah. isn't it amazing? I, I have more friends than I ever thought possible because everybody from high school and college is now reconnecting, and somehow I'm, I'm in, the, in the wave of that connection, and it's amazing. It's really amazing for me to see how everybody's turned out. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> but let's let's talk a little bit about you. I actually want to go back to um, social media, but a little bit later in the show. Um, I, I want to start by reading a description that Malcolm Gladwell wrote in his book, The Tipping Point, about you. Uh, so I want to read this quote. Uh, Gordon is a striking woman with a languid wit who lives in a right-angled, shag-rugged, white-stuccoed, modernist masterpiece in the Hollywood Hills, midway between Madonna's old house and Aldous Huxley's old house. Her tastes are almost impossibly eclectic depending on the day of the week. She might be obsessed with an obscure hip-hop band or an old Peter Sellers movie or a new Japanese electronic gadget or a certain shade of white that she has suddenly mysteriously decided is very cool. I think her skill is in understanding. When you look at youth culture, there are obviously at any one time dozens of things going on. The talent is to figure out which of those things you think is going to be the most important. How accurate would you say is his description, Dee Dee? Oi. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still live in this magnificent house in Los Angeles? Not anymore. <laughs> the masterpiece in the Hollywood Hills. No, I mean, look, I, I changed my location last year. But, um, you know, that description was written nine years ago. And at the time that he wrote this, yeah, it was really very accurate. Very accurate. And so how did you meet Malcolm? How did you become friends with him? Oh, well, I was introduced to Malcolm through a woman that I worked for at Converse. She was introduced to him by a friend of a friend. And he was, you know, he wanted to do an article on her, um, and so he went and he followed her around. And then, you know, uh, she, he had asked her if she could introduce him to other people that she worked with. And so she made the introduction to me, and he flew out to L.A., and, um, and at this time, he was just a writer, just a writer for The New Yorker. Yeah, I mean, you know, I went and I met him for lunch at Fred Siegel, you know, you know the <laughs> L.A. mecca, Fred right. Siegel. And I was 27 at the time, and I'd only been interviewed once before. 
And so I really had no experience with this. After our lunch, she was like, hey, can I don't know what you're doing tomorrow, but can, can I come over and hang out and can I check out, you know, where you live and kind of hang out with you while you work? And I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. You know, of course. And, you know, I had no idea that the majority of that article would focus on me. I actually didn't know it was a big deal until I got a phone call asking me, he was asking me if I would go meet June Newton, you know, mm-hmm. Helmut Newton's wife, uh-huh. the woman who goes as Alice Springs, the photographer, if I would go over to the Chateau Marmont and meet her so she could photograph me. Wow. Yeah, so I walked into her suite, and there's Helmut Newton. Oh, my God. Did he tell you to take off your clothes and get up on <laughs> no. that table? No, I'm just kind of like, hey, Helmut, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. Wow. But, um, you know, she wanted to photograph me in, sitting inside a refrigerator, and I told her no, and I have to say it's it's one of my biggest regrets. <laughs> no, okay, I have a lot of questions about that. A, <laughs> why did she want to take a photograph of you in a refrigerator? Well, she and, wouldn't tell me, and that was the thing. You see, I couldn't know anything about the article. And so, obviously, the article was called The Cool Hunt that he wrote for The New Yorker in 1997. And, you know, I was being called a cool hunter. All now, I know what, is, what is like, a cool hey, hunter? Can we go to a junkyard and you can sit in a vintage refrigerator? <laughs> I thought he was crazy. And so I was like, no, absolutely not. And, you know, now, you know, almost, you know, uh, I mean, over 10 years later, I totally regret it. I regret it. <laughs> yeah, well, it would have been an interesting, it certainly would have been an inter- interesting anecdote. Yeah, for sure. So, so that, <laughs> article really, that, that article really changed your life. You then appeared as well in The Tipping Point, and we'll talk a little bit about William Gibson in a few minutes as well. But So what, did, what was it like to be 27, to suddenly have this gigantic profile of you in The New Yorker, to, be, to then suddenly be the it girl in demand? Um, what, what happened in your life at that point? I mean, it was fun. You know, I mean, I a good it, it opened up a lot of opportunities for me. It, it finally gave me a voice. You know, it was it started an industry. I mean, now there's hundreds, thousands of people who Trendspot. Um, you know, tons of agencies that are centered around Trendspotting. So, you know, it was a it was a really you know important time for me, and um, it was it ended up being a lot of fun. Now, you're you're not a cool hunter anymore. Um, you are actually a number of other things, which we'll talk about. But just, just quickly, if you can, what, what exactly is a cool hunter? Like, how do you find what's cool? You know, I think it's, everybody has their own method. You know, for me, a lot of it was instinctual. Um, sometimes I had to provide evidence for people I, I was working for. So I would do things like sit on a corner for hours and take photos of every single person walking by and then analyze all of those pictures and come up with ideas. Uh-huh. Um, you know, some people are just very, you know, it's instinctual for them. With others, it's more methodical. They collect a lot of data, a lot of research. You know, cool hunting now, it's, a, it's all about evidence. How much evidence do you have to prove that something is actually happening and that it's happening in a, in a multitude of categories and with a multitude of products and concepts so what to be you, significant. What, what do you say when people ask you what you do or when you're filling out a form of any sort? What do you write in the occupation line? Oh, it's one of those things whenever I read that, it's my, I just, my heart sinks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I really have to, it depends on the audience, actually, and I have to look at the person behind the counter who's going to be the one getting the form. It's easy to explain market research. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for somebody who, 
may not really understand the concept of trend forecasting, I'll normally put, you know, market researcher. But for a person, you know, who has, you know, a little bit more understanding, I usually say that I'm a trend forecaster, a consumer insight expert. And did you always want to do this? Was this was this an aspiration that you had when you were growing up? Did you want to be a, a trend forecaster and, and somebody that worked in market research? No. <laughs> so, <laughs> did you want to be a Charlie's Angel? <laughs> You know, my mother recently told me that I wanted to be a Hasidic Jew. <laughs> and then I was obsessed with going to private Hebrew school. I have no idea where this came from. It was the but, wardrobe. Um, you know, I was always interested in the sciences, and I especially was interested in fashion design and in textiles. And, you know, I'll never forget my fashion merchandising teacher in high school told me that I had no future in fashion, that I should just consider something else. You know, I think that when somebody hears that they have absolutely no future in a particular discipline, that they should pursue that discipline with all their might. Anybody that I know that's ever been told not to do something has ended up being enormously successful. So I, I think that that's, that's just Debbie Millman advice of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stand it when people tell people that they have absolutely no chance of making it in some way. Everybody has every chance to make it. Yeah, it's a but, bummer. So, so, so you wanted to be a Hasidic Jew, and then somehow you changed your mind about that? <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> so, so, what did you want to be when? So, do you have, do you have a memory of wanting to do something else, or how did you how did you end up in the field that you're in now? I worked in retail, and I kind of worked my way up through a local surf shop. I worked as a, the girl behind the skateboard counter putting together skateboards, and then slowly I started working in the warehouse, and then I started to go on buying trips with the buyer. And I realized that I had a real knack for picking things out. Um, and then eventually, with a partner, moved to Boston and opened up a very small, very cool kind of fashion-forward retail boutique on Newberry Street. Um. And, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a cool hangout, lots of local people, local color, local flavor. Everyone would hang out on the steps and smoke all day. Um, smoke what? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> you don't have to um, and we would, you know, we would buy merchandise from all over the world. And I just, I just realized that I, I just had a knack for being able to kind of pick things that people were going to want. So then you started to work at Converse. Did you go from having your own retail shop to working for Converse directly? Well, I, I worked at Converse as a consultant. I was never employed by the company. Okay. Um, I would have a lot of ad agencies, and a lot of the footwear companies are based up in that area. And they would yes. come in, and they would show me different shoes and different colors and different styles, and they would ask me my opinion on things and, you know, it just kind of one thing led to another, and this woman who was the head of product development at Converse, she asked me to come on board as kind of a full-time consultant um, within her group. And she really mentored me and brought me into the development process and taught me how to translate abstract ideas into real products. You know, I was part of a, of a really great team there, and, in, and, in, and I'm in no way the only one responsible for all the work that we did. It was definitely a group effort. We all worked really hard and believed in what we were doing. So how would you say that you go from taking abstract ideas to making real products? Is there a, is there a methodology? Is it something that's completely intuitive? Is it, is it 
something unique to an individual person's thoughts? How do, how do you go about doing it? I mean, again, it's a lot of it is intuition, but it's also understanding your audience and knowing the right people to ask. So if you, let's say, canvas a certain area and start talking to people about the things that they like or the type of styles that they're into wearing, now, usually you'll find those people who are influencing others, or I have found that I've been, I've been able to find those influencer types. Mm-hmm. So after your work, at, well, you had a, a very, very successful run at Converse, and you helped to bring to market a number of really exciting and, and revolutionary products. What would you say was your biggest success at Converse? Well, again, I, you know, this is a team a effort. I cannot I mean, take full responsibility. But, inclusive. you know, we, we launched the Converse One Star Sandal, which still is produced today. And that was a real hit for the company. The relaunch of the One Star, which was actually the woman who I worked for, she was, that was her mission, was to launch that shoe. And it became, you know, a really important shoe. It was, I don't know if you realize this, but when Kurt Cobain killed himself, that, the picture that was in the New York Times, that was the only thing that you could see. Wow. Were the one stars on his feet. Wow. Yeah. And so a lot of it was timing. You know, the the whole grunge movement was happening. Streetwear was really important. Um, and we just rode that wave. We rode that wave. So you went from Converse to Lambesis, where you co-founded um, one of the most sought-after and influential trend reports called the L Report. How and why did you decide to do that? Well, when I was at Converse, I had a lot of access to information, you know, that they were purchasing from other companies, uh, trend research, uh, folk, they would do focus groups, they'd do all kinds of stuff. And I realized that most of that information was just very late in the game. And I was thinking, okay, well, what if I went around and just interviewed people kind of like me, people who are setting trends or interested in trends. And so I formulated what was the prototype of kind of the first version of the L report. Um, and it tracked what trendsetters were doing in about six different cities in the United States. And then um, I was, you know, getting introduced to a bunch of different people um, hoping in the hopes of selling it, and I met someone who worked at the Lambesis Agency, who was the director of uh, client services and who later became my partner at Look Look. And uh, she was really interested in bringing this report internally into Lambesis and using it for their client, Airwalk. Um, so, you know, I came on board. We tweaked that report and offered mainstream information in that report, which actually was, you know, really, really important because, it was the first report of its kind to ever track the diffusion of trends from trendsetters to mainstream people. So let's talk a little bit about trends, Didi. How does a trend start? I mean, you know, now, so that's such a hard question. It can start with a person. It can start with a community of people. It can start in a specific place. Um, now that we have the Internet and this hyper-connectivity, um, it can kind of run like wildfire. And and it just does it spread? Now, I know that there are a lot of companies that hire trend forecasters, trend analyzers, all in an effort to become more trendy. But doesn't does the effort to try to become more trendy somehow influence or dilute the 
meaning of that trendiness? It depends on who's doing it and what the message is and how authentic it is. When Nike pushes out a new trend or a new idea because they're innovators in that space, it, you know, you believe what they have to say. People who are smart, inventive, interested, creative, kind of latch onto it and spread the word. Um, it, I think it depends on where it's coming from. Have you seen a lot of trends be manufactured? Of course. I mean, there's too many to talk about. Um, but the people who are really successful at predicting trends, uh, taking trends and integrating it into products, they stand, I mean, they stand out. Look at a company like Apple. Um, mm-hmm. Look at a company, again, like Nike. Puma is another great example of a company that incorporates a lot of trends into the work that they do. Now, I, I recently read an article in the Los Angeles Times that, aside from the work that you're doing, and you were very specifically mentioned as an exception, uh, and a few select others, trend spotting has, in essence, become just another trend. And would you agree to that? Do you think that there's a lot more um, trend spotting or trend hunting or trend development now that's less authentic than ever before? Well, look, I agree that there are too many firms and people to count um, who do this now. But I, I don't agree that spotting is necessarily a trend if you're really good at something like a Lee Edelcourt or a Martin Raymond from Viewpoint, you have a really great career. You get a lot of respect for, you know, for what you do um, and also from really high-powered people. So what really makes us different from any other industry? There will always be new, young, and fresh people who will want to be part of interesting industries. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't see how this is really any different than anything else. Yeah, no, I would agree with you. I would agree with you entirely, especially I could see the same types of patterns in um, in the design business. Um, you know, when I was younger, um, I loved knowing about things that had not yet made it to the mainstream, and I, I sort of prided myself on that knowledge. And as soon as the things that I knew and loved became more mainstream, I stopped loving them quite in the same way. Um, do you think that there's a certain irony to um, – the mainstream demand of something cool losing its cool factor? Yes, of course. But, you know, the good news is is that I think real trendsetters are usually into doing it just a little bit cooler or the cur- they're doing the cooler version of something. Yeah, they're raising the cool ball. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so by the time it goes to the mainstream, uh, it really doesn't matter to them anymore, and it just keeps the process moving forward. Now, speaking of patterns, in 2003, when William Gibson's book Pattern Recognition came out, which is one of my all-time favorite books, uh, it was declared that Gibson had based his main character, the great and mysterious Case Ballard, who was able to tell marketers whether what they had was going to be successful or not, on you. Uh, I assume you read the book. What did, I what did. did, you, what, did you, what did you think? Did you recognize yourself as Case Ballard? Uh, you know, I... This is what people say, and, of course, there are pieces of her that uh, I recognize. Um, the book was optioned for a film, and one of the screenwriters came and uh, met with me for, you know, a couple of days and, you know, asked me how I work or what I would do in these various situations. And 
and nothing ever happened with it. Yeah, I know. It's the, it's, what, it's one of the big uh, urban myths around William Gibson is why why hasn't pattern recognition been made into a movie? I think the people that haven't read pattern recognition somehow think that it's a business book when, in fact, it's really a, a real-time science fiction novel. Yeah, it is. And I have to say, any time that I meet somebody in the technology space who, who has read that book, yeah, they 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 really freak out on me. <laughs> I know. Well, I have to say, I have to say that uh, Josh Lieberson uh, introduced Dee Dee and I, listeners, and when he first uh, told me that he was friends with her, I, I nearly fainted because not only was Case Ballard one of my heroes, and I really wanted to be Case Ballard, maybe still do. Um, the idea that that she was based on you was who I also admired from afar was was truly phenomenal to me. Oh, that's very sweet. Um, now it's it's really interesting because in his book um, Gibson he he also termed coined the term cyberspace, um, and he coined that term not in pattern recognition but in neuromancer, and and in pattern recognition he essentially predicted YouTube um, with his description of pieces of video being chased by what he termed footage heads. Um, shortly after the book was published, you essentially came created the idea of user-generated content. So I, I think this it's really interesting the way your, your two narratives are intertwined. But how did you come up with the idea of asking users or people, um, audience, to create content to use online? What, what was the motivation behind that? Well, my my partner and I at the time at Look Look, we, we built a database of 41,000 people who wanted to report on trends and ideas and participate with brands. So we started to collect a lot of visual data along the way because our clients actually needed to have evidence that certain things were happening. So, you know, our communities, they would send in photos and videos, and then this turned into ideas for products and advertising and art, and it was just kind of a natural progression. It was just they were doing this on their own. Once they were given that pipeline and that platform to do it, it just it was like we opened the floodgates. We couldn't get them to stop. So let's talk about Look Look for a minute. Um, let's talk about the magazine. Um, for our listeners that might not be aware of, of what you did and what you created, could you, could you describe Look Look for our listeners? Uh, Look Look magazine was an arts magazine. It was all based on user-generated content for young people, and, it, folk, and it, it featured all kinds of art, uh, digital photography, regular photography, mixed media, graphic art, creative writing, um, anything that we could put between the pages, we would. Um, we, pre we created this prototype in 2001, um, and at that time when I was taking it around to all the publishers, no one cared. Hmm. I was told by the ex-creative director of Condé Nast that it was a pretentious European arts magazine and that all young people cared about was celebrities and gossip and why would any of them be interested in art or sharing their art with others? Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, needless to say, this person was let go, <laughs> and then they went off to run their own pretentious arts magazine. <laughs> <laughs> but... Oh my God! But yeah, and that was a blunder. Yeah, it was. It was just outrageous, and it was at that point that my partner and I realized that we, if we weren't going to be able to get a publisher, then we needed to go to our clients and ask them to sponsor it. Um, and so we ended up publishing it ourselves. So you self-published this magazine, and so how did you how did you solicit the content? After the first issue, it just. It just took off via word of mouth. 
Um, within six months of that first issue being out, 26 countries uploaded to our website. Wow. So how many how many pieces of content were you getting uh, in an average day? I don't even remember, to be honest with you. Sometimes people would send their entire portfolios. Wow. Um, the other thing that was really interesting, in this, in this world of, of digital media, people were still using snail mail. Right. So every day we would get boxes and boxes of people's photos and portfolios and CDs, and it was, it was pretty amazing. So how many issues of Look Look did you do? Seven. Seven. We would publish them twice a year. Twice we stopped year. publishing in 2007. And um, what are you doing with all the content now? You know, it lives between the pages of the magazine. Sometimes you can view the gallery online, although it seems to crash all of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes you can look at the gallery online. People still submit. Uh, a couple months ago, you know, we don't even do the magazine anymore. Um, and uh, a couple months ago, somebody from Taiwan, somebody else from Greece, uploaded work it just it really took on a life of its own so tell me what your views are now of the enormous growth of user-generated content of the subsequent development in social networking and social communities what what do you think is happening out there i had lunch with somebody today that specifically asked me to ask you what's the next big thing that's going to happen in this world Sorry. Wow, that's a, I, that's a huge question. Sorry. I don't know how to answer that one. Okay. Um, but I'm really excited. I'm excited by uh, by where technology is taking us. Um, I think social networking is, you know, of course, something that's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. It's just like email. It's commonplace. I think there will be en- an endless stream of new and exciting forms of this type of communication. I, I, I signed up for Twitter just so I could follow you. <laughs> But you'll see on Twitter is comments about email. I could never do it myself. Um, My friends had to force me to get on Facebook, and that was because of the fact that I had um, a a son two years ago, and everybody wanted to see pictures of him. So So this was an easy way for me just to kind of update everybody on what was going on with him, but that was the only reason why I took the Facebook plunge. (laughs) Well, and now you have all your high school friends being able to witness what you've done in your life since. Hey, Didi, we have a caller on the line. We have Gregory online. Gregory, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. I just want to tell you I'm on vacation, and I I don't even know your guest today. I'm so sorry, but I knew it was your 100th show, and I just wanted to say that Congratulations, and it's been so wonderful, and I wish you another 100,000 shows. Oh, thank you for calling, Gregory. You know, You're the so show welcome. Be the same I'll be calling, calling on the 101st show. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Have Bye-bye. A good, where, are you, where are you vacationing? I'm, I'm down in Georgia well, visiting I'm, my family. I am talking to the great Dee Dee Gordon today, so you can um, hopefully listen uh, when they come out, when the show is out on a download. I will download it, definitely. Okay. Thank, thank you. you so Bye-bye. much. Bye-bye. That was very sweet. That was very sweet. Yeah, it was. I know, this is exciting. 100 shows. I know, I know. It's really, really quite bizarre. So so we were talking a little bit about social media. Um, I want to ask you what you, given your knowledge and expertise in youth culture, I want to ask you, this this is one of those questions that sort of smacks of age, uh, but I want to ask you what you how would you describe today's youth? What do you what do you feel about 
the world of today's youth, which, you know, is just such a yucky, yucky kind of question, but I, I really want to know what you think. Well, I have a more optimistic view than I think some of my counterparts. Um, I think that they are amazing. I wish I grew up, I wish I was growing up at this time. I think that they are really proactive, entrepreneurial, and passionate. They're really optimistic, and they know that they can, they can make a change in the world. Uh, and before, I think sorry. that that's a great thing. Do you feel optimistic about the world you're bringing your, your child into? Um, as far as what his, what the, op, where, the fact that he has opportunities, yes. And what all of those opportunities are, yes. Kind of the other things, uh, the economy, the fact that we're in a war, all of that, you know, that's, I think any mother is freaked out by those kinds of things. But um, endless opportunities for my son, and I think that's really exciting. You know, I've read lots and lots of theories um, in lots and lots of different places who believe that this generation of kids has been exposed to everything and that nothing shocks them anymore and that really as a result marketers have to go much further to capture their imagination. And I'm, I'm wondering if you think that's true or if you think that there might be for lack of a better term, cultural universals that that always capture the spirit of a generation, like love or, or sex, for that matter. But which, what's your thought? I, I will say that I think that there are cultural universals that can capture the spirit of this generation. And I think it's about discovery, and I think it's about participation and meaning and authenticity. I don't think you, I don't think you need to... Um, shower them with bells and whistles. I think it's about coming to them with a real point of view and having it mean something. So the truth. Always the truth. And truth and transparency all the way. Dee Dee, we have another caller on the line. We have Monica. Monica, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Dee Dee. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Monica. Um, so I'm, it's funny. Um, I've had this question on my mind um, since before this the show even um, went on the air today, um, and it's about social networks, and so it's a really good conversation that you've been having to segue into this. But um, you've been talking about how social networks have been amazing, you know, for connecting, and um, my question for you is, Dee, um, with also, you know, you have a son now, and you're also hearing about things such as cyberbullying. Do you think social networking sites like Facebook and MySpace are more of, or are they enhancing a youth's life, or do you see them as possibly more of a detriment? I think that no matter where you are, if you're on Facebook, if you're in on a schoolyard, you know, in a schoolyard, I think you're going to always be faced with these kinds of problems. I mean, right now, social networking allows for these horrible, you know, situations to get escalated very quickly and exposes it to a larger group of people. And that's what makes this really unfortunate. But I, you know, I believe that if, uh, you know, you can try to protect your kids as much as possible and participate with them and see what they're doing on these networks and try to influence them as much as possible, you can hopefully avoid these types of situations. No, I, I do think about that a lot. Whenever I, I read or see one of those videos on YouTube, it, it's just horrific. Thank you so much. Thank you for calling, Monica. 
So, Didi, last question before we bring on a couple of other guests to join us for the last segment of the broadcast. What are you doing right now? What kind of projects are you working on? Wow, that's a big question. Um, yes. Currently, I'm doing a couple of different things. I'm working on a new digital music platform for a large public entertainment company that's going to uh, remain nameless because of my contract. But it involves the integration of a lot of different types of new and exciting technologies. And I really love all the people who I'm working with on this project, and I'm learning a lot every day, which is great. Um, I'm also working on developing a new research product methodology right now with a woman who I used to work with at Look Look. Her name is Sarah Monampour, and she has a Ph.D. in social research methodologies. Um, I'm also working with another technologist who has built numerous platforms in virtual worlds, and we're trying to figure out uh, a way to conduct a new type of research online. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. Um, and also, I've always wanted to create my own brand, and I've been working with a friend of mine who's kind of been in the, the, the production business as well as a designer in Japan, and we're trying to develop a co-develop a line of travel-related merchandise. So um, I'll keep you posted on all of it. Yes, yeah, so that, that, that just leads me to one last question, and, okay. and, then, and then I'm going to bring Paul and Simon on to join us. With everything that you've learned over your career about branding, what would be the one thing that you feel is most important to apply to your own brand? Uh, stay true. Stay true to what you want to do. Be transparent about the, about the way you do it. Um, be transparent about your process. And don't talk down to people. Great. Thank you, Dee Dee. Thank you so much. You are welcome. I uh, loved being on your show. Oh, I loved having you on the show. You, you're not going yet, though. You're staying until the very end of us, I hope. Okay. I, I have with me now two very, very dear friends that have been on the show before. I have Paul Sayre, the, the acclaimed designer, editor, writer, printmaker, and just designer extraordinaire. And I have Simon Linz, who is the creative director, the chief creative officer, I should say, at Sterling Brands, the place where I have my day job and the place that keeps me or tries to keep me out of trouble as much as possible. And they are here with us, Didi, to help celebrate this 100th broadcast and also to check in to see what they've been up to since they were last on the show. And Simon has a, a, a handful of, of glasses that he's been I brought radio champagne. <laughs> oh, isn't that sweet? Well, thank you. Yeah, Simon, hook me up. <laughs> yeah, where's mine? Yeah, we have to send some to Dee Dee as well. So, Paul, let, let's, let's, let's pick up where we left off with you. Last we talked, you were working on a book called Leisurama, which has since been published to great acclaim. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. You've also done some extraordinary covers for New York Magazine, and you recently did the Star Wars cover for Newsweek. I mean, the Star Trek cover for Whoa, Newsweek. Yeah. Yep, sorry about that. It's like saying Big Mac and at Burger King. And I've done that as well, and will likely continue to do that in the future. But congratulations on the, on the Star Trek cover. That was phenomenal. So, so um, how is life? What else is happening it's with good. you? Well, I'd like to just say congratulations to making it to 100 Oh, that's shows. a toast to that. Yes. Oh, take a glass. You. Take a glass. Thank yes. you. Thank congratulations. You. Thank you. Thank exciting, you. exciting day. Thank Very you. dry. So, so, so tell, us, tell us what you've been up, up to. How do you feel like the um, design world is at the moment? And well, you don't want to get me started. Yes, I do. That. That's no, why no. you're on the show. So, well, first of all, I've had a bad week. 
It's just some things. I, I, I don't know. It's you know I um I I call them just by number now. It's like number thirty six. There's a list of these of a, things. I don't know. Maybe there's a couple thousand of these problems that keep popping up. It's the same thing. It just has different clothes on. It's the same problem. Oh, okay. Anyway, number 36 was this week, number 73, and maybe 349. But they all kind of happened at the same time. Anyway, no, everything's good. Everything's good. Well, what, <laughs> what frustrates you most as a designer? I mean, you did a really wonderful um, sold-out presentation recently for the New York chapter of the AIGA, and you did that uh, at the Katie Murphy Amphitheater at uh, Fashion Institute of Technology, completely packed crowd, and you were talking about designers and their problems. So, so no, what... we're talking about design, my problems. Okay, well, this designer <laughs> um, with his I'm, problems. I'm surprised anybody showed up. Um, the thrilling topic. No one, you know, I'm sure you guys have no no problems. Are you kidding? Um, anyway, <laughs> no, that, that was when we don't have yeah. problems. No, that was that was fun. That That's was why they uh, call it work. I guess. Yeah. No, that was fun. No, I I guess I've been pretty busy. Um, you've just gone over that list. Um, I, the the the, uh, uh, the the lecture that I did recently was fantastic. Um, it was a lot of fun. I was kidding around um, that night saying that I I knew if there were if there were 300 people in the audience, I knew 299 of them personally. I well, was I think in New York, actually you know. a pretty pretty big compliment then if you think that all these people that were in the audience knew you and still showed up to hear things that they probably already knew. Yes, exactly. Number 436. Right. Um, no, well, yeah. So that was great, but it was also stressful. I don't know what it was. It was uh, I don't know. It was just that you know. Presenting to a group of people that you know, or at least some of the audience that you know well, it's usually like you're doing this somewhere in Timbuktu and you know maybe one person because you just met them, you know, a couple hours ago, you know. Right. So it was very different in that way. But, um, no, everything is good. Down at 6th Avenue, um, we have uh, we have an all-graphic design building, building now above the Dunkin' Donuts Carlson so Wilker's Paul on the Sayre, second floor. Office of Paul Sayre, Carlson Wilker, and, and he's on uh, the top floor. Uh, Frank DeRose have, uh, has a studio. He used to, designer used to work for Hilti and Jan, and now he's on the fourth floor. They kicked the driving school out. So it's, we're calling it the Sixth Avenue Design Center. Nice. Uh, we're meeting every Tuesday, uh, and each of us is responsible for giving a presentation. Maybe we'll invite you down. We're 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 going to be bringing some outside people in, but uh, and you're doing your summer program again, then? Yes, uh, with James Victoria yeah. and Young. Sarah Victoria Wilker. I think I think we're full. What again tell this tell, year. tell the um, listeners about the program so that if anybody's interested, they can think about it for next year. It's a one-week workshop uh, that we hold at the Art Directors Club, uh, and I do it with uh, fellow designers Jan Wilker, who's also my neighbor, and uh, James Victoria, mm-hmm. and uh, we just you know. I don't know. I don't think because we're actually like-minded and we're like-minded in some ways, but we're very different um, in other ways. But uh, so we thought it'd be interesting doing it together. And um, and you know, it's we do a lot of work these types of workshops all over the place individually. But we felt it was interesting. It was, this was an interesting sort of thing, just because it's not tied into a, any other existing um, institution. And not that we don't do. I don't. Not that I don't necessarily do whatever I feel like I need to do when I'm teaching mm-hmm. at SVA or wherever else I'm teaching. But um, uh, it was just something kind of that, you know, I tried to fail with my workshop that I did. And I think I did a really great job of it. Of failing? <laughs> yeah, in Why the workshop, keep... with the workshop. It was a spectacular 
disaster, I think. It was a two-day spectacular disaster, and I'm aiming a new one at this summer, hopefully. So So what what makes you happy about the fact that, and you say it with such pride that I, I almost want to experience No, it was unbelievable. It was fantastic. I mean, it was terrible and wonderful at the same time. I tried to do a uh, collaboration with 40 people with no rules. Mm. It was Lord of the Flies. I was going to say, it sounds like Lord of the Flies. It was crazy. Uh, I still hold out hope that 40 people in a room could figure something out in a couple days and agree, but it didn't. certainly didn't happen last summer. Uh, we're we're going to do something totally different this sum, summer, okay. but it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was surprising. I mean, there was people, there was some... Yeah, well, anyway. Well, I have um, we survived. I have some exciting news. Uh, I just was alerted by our producers at Voice America that John is on the phone and I I'm hoping my fingers and toes are crossed that it's John Fulbrook. John, it is. can you hear calling? me? Yes, we can. Yay, hey, hey guys, hey Paul. Hey John Fulbrook. Hey. John. Fulbright. Hey. Um, hey John. Dee, Dee, I don't know if you know this. I don't know if Simon knows, and I know that that Paul does. Um, John Fulbrook was my very first guest on Design Matters four years ago, back in February of 2005. John Fulbrook was my very first guest. Hey, John, thank wow. you for the symmetry. Hey, first of all, congratulations, Debbie, on your home show. Amaz- amazing. And I can't believe, I mean, I think I was six years old last time I was on the show. I was only um, eight, so yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> And I'm calling in from a, a castle in Terrytown where my mother is getting married right now. Uh, this show is turning out to sound a little bit like a Fellini movie, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> what is she wearing? Oh. Tell us what your mother's wearing. Uh, well, I, I haven't seen the gown yet. I'm about to head into okay. rehearsal. But uh, I've told all the little nieces and nephews that they need to quiet down because I have to be on Debbie shows for a couple of minutes. Oh, well, thank you so much. I, I really i am so touched that you poured yourself into this little sidebar for us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. It really means a lot to me to to have you on the show. I remember, John, that very first show, I was terrified. I was absolutely beyond belief nervous. I had, because we were talking about books, I don't know if you'll remember this, but I had notes and books pasted on my walls all over my office. I was so nervous about mispronouncing Paul Sayer's name because I didn't know Paul at the time. I only barely <laughs> knew his, his wife, Emily. Uh, I, was, I, I, I taped up his name, and I still think, despite writing it out phonetically, I still mispronounced it. Um, I was stuttering and stammering through the whole show. And one of the reasons that I wanted you to be on that show with me, John, and I think I might have told you this, but it's certainly good to tell you now, is that I felt so safe in your in your presence that I knew that if I if I screwed up, that you'd be there to catch me. So thank you for that. Thank you for 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 being part well, of it. But now that you debut, this will be you sort of evolved into this perfect host. You're sort of somewhere in between Barbara Walters and Rachel Maddow. Oh, my God. Thank you. That is, I actually think that's the best compliment I've ever had in my life. So, and, and we did want Emily to be here with us, too. Paul's wife, Emily Oberman, my hero, who has been on the show before. But um, talk about what's happened since you've been on the show. The other thing that Paul and Emily have to uh, share is that they're having twins very soon. Hey, Any moment now in Emily's uh 
taking care of that at the moment. So Simon, you're you're with us as well, and I just wanted to get your sense of what has transpired since you were last on the show. You were on a pivotal show for me. You, uh, I'm not quite sure that I've fully recovered from that. So <laughs> you, even now. you were you were me. And I, I was, was you, and uh, you were David Carson. I seem to remember. I was, I was. So so how is how has life been since then? Well, I have to confess that I haven't listened to every one of your shows. I tune in every every time I can, but there's this sort of air of mystery every. Every uh, Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock, the blinds come down and <laughs> Debbie goes missing. Uh, so we're always sort of anxious to know what's going on. Um, I think for myself, I've just been really, uh, as you know, we've just been sort of inundated with uh, design projects, some really exciting uh, brands that we've been working on over the last sort of two or three years in particular. Um, but um, I think... I think for me, actually, one of my one of my sort of most exciting projects this year has actually been a personal project. Uh, we've been working with uh, Robert Venturi to, to design uh, an extension to our home yes. up in Columbia County, and I know that you've seen it in its sort of formative stages. Yes, uh, but that should be finished next month, so I'm really excited about that. Um, so that's taking up a lot of our time and sort of energy. Uh, but but I wanted to just really I, was, I printed out the list of uh, all the guests that you've had over the last few years, and I just have to say it's such an impressive list of people and uh, it's, it's really hard to measure just how much influence these people have had just on our sort of culture in general but I know that their influence really sort of spreads way beyond the US and it's people all over the world are kind of looking to these designers as their real mentors and guides so I just I would like to say thank you especially to the guests that have been on your show uh, just a phenomenal inspiration to, to all of us and um, just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> well, thank you, Simon. Thank you. Well, I think it's fitting that in the final moments of our 100th show, the finale of our fifth season, we have a one last caller. So we have Jamie on the line. Jamie, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hello, Debbie. Hello. Um, I want to say congratulations on your 100th show. Thank you. I listened to you when I was a student before I knew who you were. And then I had the pleasure of meeting with you and working with you, and it has been a wonderful experience. So oh, thank you, Jamie. I want to say congratulations and hello to everyone over there. Hi. And, Didi, it was a pleasure listening to everything that you had to say. I wanted to actually ask you a question. Good. Oh, wonderful. Perfect. <laughs> I wanted to know if you, could, um, if you could enlighten us and let us know what you're reading and listening to and watching these days. Well, okay. Um, if it's on a Kindle, then I'm reading it. Oh, nice. Because um, that is my new favorite gadget that my mother gave me for my birthday, and I love it. And um, I'm in the process of reading that book, Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert. Mm -hmm. Really, really great book. Um, as far as what do I watch, I watch everything. Um, I, I have two, TIFO, two TiVos in the house. Wow. And uh, I must watch at least three to four shows a night. What's your oh. favorite show, Dee Dee? Oh, my God. How can you make me pick? Okay, I That's a great line to end this broadcast on. How can you make me pick? I just want to thank you all. I want to thank Dee Dee. I want to thank John Fulbrook, Paul Sayre, Simon Lintz, Jamie Cohen. I want to thank all my listeners. It has been an extraordinary ride. I also want to thank my staff and partners at Sterling Brands, especially Lisa Grant and Jen Simon. I also want to thank my regular callers who have helped make the show a true joy, especially Isabel and Gregory. I want to thank my listeners for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, 
we could make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next season. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Talk to you in a couple of months. Okay, bye. to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Hi. 